and have a have a chat to me about it. I'll get a card or get onto the website probably. I don't really know very much at all. I'm the principal and that means I delegate everything. You know, so I really don't know much at all about the college. Uh, but if you get on the website, you'll find lots of information uh, there. We have a, in Saturday week, next Saturday week, we have a big conference called the Neoleader Conference coming up, which is particularly for young adult leaders uh, between about 18 and 30 or so. Uh, so you may not be in that category, some of you are, but a lot of you aren't. But if you know anyone that's interested in that, uh, that's on the north side of Brisbane. I don't know if you ever get over to the north side. I don't get over to the south side very much, so I had to get up very early to get over here this morning. Uh, but it's on the north side of Brisbane, fairly close to our college, a church called Nexus. Uh, we have about 300 or so uh, young leaders that come to that. Uh, it's a fantastic time for motivating and training younger leaders, getting a passion for God and a passion for ministry. Guy Mason's an evangelical Anglican from Melbourne, leads the largest church uh, down there, and he's coming up to speak. So we're doing that as well. There's lots of other things we're doing. There's lots of resources on websites that we've got. We've got Malian Workplace, which is how to be a Christian in your workplace. Uh, we've got Malian Traverse, which is to do with evangelism and apologetics. So there's lots of things there uh, you can get on the website. Uh, I uh, want to give you a bit of a history lesson to start with. Now, I want to say that uh, I'm not a church historian, all right? But being principal of the college, you're supposed to know something about everything, all right? So if I speak confidently about this, you will think that I know something about it, which I probably don't. But anyway, let me do my best. During the Middle Ages, uh, the church was seen as kind of a mediator between God and, and people. So the church kind of stood in the middle. It was seen to have the power uh, over over life and death in a way. In other words, what happens to you when you die was determined by the church or by the priests or by the, the Pope uh, in the church. Whether you went to hell uh, was decided how long you spent in purgatory. They had this idea that when you uh, died, you suffered for a while in purgatory uh, and then when you paid for the sins that you'd done on this earth, then you went to heaven. And that length of time in purgatory was, could be determined by the church as well. So it gave the church incredible power, as you can imagine. People were terrified of hell and purgatory and they lived in fairly difficult times. Uh, and so they lived under constant fear and guilt. Uh, to avoid hell, then they needed the priests to baptise them properly as babies within a certain time and the priests to pronounce the last rites correctly on them and the priests every Sunday to do certain things within the, the mass uh, that would then make people right with God. So they were very dependent uh, on the leaders of the church. Uh, this fear that they had of hell and purgatory was used to manipulate people. And so therefore the Pope promised at one stage that if people went to the Crusades and they died in the Crusades, they would skip purgatory completely and go straight to heaven. Sounds a little bit like the promises that Islamic terrorists believe these days, doesn't it? That something wonderful is going to happen to them. And, uh, and so that happened. Uh, they used to sell indulgences, which were kind of uh, special prayers uh, that people would pray for them. And therefore they would lessen their time in in, in purgatory. So, so the church was quite manipulative at the time and uh, used its power to force people to do certain things and a lot of people wasted their lives because of that. This, of course, is so different from the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That says that it's not to do with anything we do or anything that Daryl does 
or anything that the head of the Queensland Baptist Church does. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with what Jesus has already done. That he died for us, that he's saved us through his death and his resurrection. And so we can be sure, if you are a Christian this morning, that you're going to heaven because of what Jesus has done. You don't have to worry about purgatory. You don't have to worry about what other people think or what other people do. It's what Jesus has done for you that guarantees that you're going to have life forever. Our God is a loving God, a God of grace, who loves to receive people into his family. Not a God of manipulation, not a God who causes us to constantly fear in our lives. So having said that, I'm going to ask you what you think of these words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. This is the passage we're looking at this morning. It's 1 John, oh, sorry, not 1 John. It's uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 uh, to 49 or 50. And I'm going to read these. What I want to do this morning is preach about sin. And it's one of these sermons that afterwards no one's going to want to talk to me, all right? I realise that because you're not going to come and say, boy, that was a really good message because that has implications for you, all right? It's not a message that I particularly want to preach, but it's very much on my heart. And so let's have a listen to this. In the light of what I've just said about the fear of the Middle Ages and what we know, what Luther said and what many others have said about saved by grace, let's listen to these words of Jesus. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? It sounds too extreme. It sounds almost to a degree manipulative. If you've got a sin in your life, cut off your hand. If it's your hands, it's a problem because you don't want to end up in hell. It sounds primitive. It sounds medieval. But maybe we're misunderstanding these words. Maybe this is not exactly what it sounds like. It's not exactly what Jesus is saying because it is easy when you just hear something to take it out of its context and, and think that it says something else. We have a bit of this problem at college, you see. Uh, we have Wi-Fi right throughout our college campus and students sit in classroom with their computers or their iPads and they take notes. All the notes are already up on the, the website so they just download them and add to them as they go along. Which means that, that uh, our students are constantly on the, on the web as they sit in class. Usually they're following the notes, but not always. One of the dangers is they have access to Facebook. And anything you say as a lecturer in class can go straight up on Facebook. It's a bit scary. Because what happens is students tend to take what you say out of context and put it straight up on Facebook. Let me give you some examples. Charles, who's... Uh, our Old Testament uh, lecturer said this, Jesus is not God. That appeared on Facebook. Now, the context was he was, talking, he was teaching about the Trinity. 
And that Trinity is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is not all of the Trinity. And so that's what he was saying. But it doesn't sound like it there, does it? Or something that I, was, I said uh, to the class, I'd like to look at the Bible, but we don't have time for that. <laughs> now, what was happening was I was getting towards the end of my lesson and I had a whole lot of verses there and I just didn't have time to go through them all. But that doesn't sound like that, does it? And so maybe this is what's happening here. We're taking something that Jesus has said, but only just reading that little bit, we don't get the whole context. So let me try and put what Jesus is saying here in a broader context of, of Scripture. The first thing is, let's talk a little bit about hell. Uh, the word hell in uh, the Greek is the word Gehenna, which, is, uh, which was a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem in one of the valleys. They'd throw all their rubbish there and they keep fires burning there the whole time to, to burn up the rubbish. And so that became a symbol in their minds of what hell was like. Um, hell, most Aussies don't believe in hell. They, they don't like the thought of suffering. They don't like the thought of eternal uh, judgment by God. And so they don't believe in those things. But most evangelical Christians do believe in hell because the Bible is just so clear about it. Uh, it's symbolised by fire, but it's really just being separated from God forever. And that's horrific, of, of course. But we also believe, as Christians, in eternal life. And what happens is, as I said at the start, when we're saved by Jesus, we don't have to fear hell any longer. Hell is taken off the agenda for us because we can be sure that we're going to be with Jesus forever because of what Jesus has done. And so when Jesus is talking about hell here and the danger of hell and what hell's going to do to you, and so therefore, cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. He's not actually talking to Christians, obviously, because hell is not an issue for those who belong to Jesus. So that's the first thing I would, would mention. Today. The second thing is, um, sorry, just, just hell's mentioned a number of times here. Go into hell or fire never goes out. Into hell, verse 48 or 47, thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We live without fear of that hell because we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, and God forgives us and we're right with God. All right, the second thing I would say is that clearly Jesus is not speaking literally here. Like there's nothing in Jesus' ministry where people ever cut off hands or cut off feet or plucked out eyes. That just didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened, didn't it? Jesus actually healed people, made their legs work, <laughs> um, opened their eyes, uh, so that they could see. So there's no, Jesus is obviously not saying this is actually what you need to do. He didn't damage people, he fixed them up. So obviously Jesus is exaggerating here to make his point. He's not actually telling them to do these things, but he's saying, hey, this is very dangerous and therefore you need to deal with it. You know, parents do those things. I don't know about you, but you know, you might exaggerate time, you know. You stop that or I'll send you to boarding school or something. You know, like, I know you wouldn't say that to your kids, but, but that, you know, like that kind of, you never would, but you're kind of exaggerating things to make your point. This is a very serious thing. This is obviously doing this here. In light of this teaching then, so here's Jesus exaggerating something to say the and key, the importance of it all. But it's not to do, hell's nothing to do with Christians. You could say that a summary of this passage is more or less 
This is a warning for those who do not belong to Jesus, that are not now Christians, to say, you better deal with your sin in your life through what Jesus has done. Because if you don't deal with your sin, if you don't, then you're going to end up in hell, which is a terrible place where you will suffer forever separated from God. And I think we feel comfortable with that. It kind of lets us off the hook, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like this passage is not really for most of us. Only for a few of us maybe that are still on the journey towards Christianity. And maybe that does apply to us. But for most of us, it's, it's okay. It really doesn't apply to us. Except for a couple of things. Actually, hell is a bigger issue for us than we might think. Now, I'm not going to go back on what I said about eternal life. The fact is, what is eternal life if you cannot be sure that you're going to heaven to be with God forever? If you could think that next week I could sin and therefore lose my eternal life, it's not eternal life then. So I have no doubts that if you truly belong to Jesus, you don't have to worry about hell. It's not an issue for you. But the question is, how can you actually be sure that you're a Christian and therefore hell is not on the agenda? Some of us might say, well, it's because, you know, I, basically I come to church and I do lots of things for God and, and therefore, you know, I know that I'm a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, but doing lots of things for God never makes you a Christian. Maybe some of you say, well, I prayed a prayer. What happens was there was a time when I prayed this prayer and I said, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I'm, I can't do it by myself. I'm sorry for what I've done wrong and I want you to be in my life and part of all that I do. And therefore, because I prayed that prayer at one stage in my life, therefore, I can be sure that I'm a Christian now. Now, praying that prayer is a wonderful thing and it's often the way that people become Christians. But praying that prayer doesn't guarantee that you're a Christian. Let me give you an example. There are many, many people that have done much more than prayed prayers and they're not going to heaven. Judas is one. Uh, Judas did lots of things for Jesus. Uh, you might know that when Jesus was on earth, he had 12 disciples and others as well. Lots of bigger crowd around him as two. And he sent out these disciples in pairs. And what did they do? They went out there. They preached. They uh, delivered people from demons. They healed people in pairs. Now, it's pretty obvious if you're in pairs, if one of the pairs letting the team down, isn't it? And yet the disciples never knew who was the one that Judas had a different agenda. They didn't know that. So obviously Judas was out there doing all those things where the other disciples coming back and celebrating what, what God has done. But where did Judas end up? Those verses that I've got up there make it very clear. He ended up in hell. So he did lots of things. He prayed, he, he actually preached, he delivered people from demons and yet he was not a Christian. So how can you know that you're a Christian? How can you be sure that uh, hell is not on the agenda for you? Well, the letter of 1 John deals with this issue. John was addressing people to say, how can you be certain that you're a Christian? How can you really be sure? And basically he says, there's three things that come together that guarantee you that you belong to Jesus. 
The first one is you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, you need to believe that Jesus came to this earth, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he's with the Father now, and that because of what Jesus has done, you can be right with him. Firstly, you need to believe. The second thing he talks about is you need to love people in a deeper way than you've ever done before. Not that that makes you a Christian, but that's the sign that you are a Christian. There's a love that you have that you couldn't have naturally within yourself that's there because God is in your life. The third thing he says is that you obey Jesus if, you're, if you really are a Christian. Now let me show this to you. I'll just read a few verses from, uh, from 1 John chapter 2. Listen to this. The man who says, I know him. In other words, the person who says, yes, I belong to Jesus, I'm a Christian, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And then from the other side, a few more verses. Okay, one is that we walk the way Jesus walked. We follow Jesus. And then in verse 15, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. So our approach is it's not the world, this world that we love. We love God and because of that we walk in the ways of Jesus. John says that is the evidence that you belong to Jesus. There is a serious desire in you to obey Jesus and to avoid sin. Now that doesn't mean we're perfect does it? I mean, there's no one here that's perfect. Not that we get it all right, but there is a passion and a heart within us to do what Jesus calls us to do, to obey the word. This is key to following Jesus. So in other words, if I continue to sin and it doesn't make any difference in my life, I say, well, that's all right. I'm still a Christian. Everything's okay. Then no, that's not right. I may not be a Christian. Hebrews, the verses up there, Hebrews 10, 26 says this. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. There may be some sitting here this morning that feel that because you've prayed a prayer at some stage or because you do some good things in the church then that's what makes you a Christian and I'm sorry that's not true that's just not true one of the signs that you do belong to Jesus is a passion and a heart to obey him and to please him and that's more important than anything else we don't always get it right but there is a heart and passion in here to do what Jesus calls us to do and John says that's the sign that you belong to Jesus. So maybe this morning the Bible challenges your confidence. Now, one thing we've got to be really careful of here is guilt. Do you know what I mean? Like many of us feel guilty and we're not good enough and all the rest. And the answer to that is Jesus has paid the price for you. You are right with God. And the fact is if you're feeling guilty this morning, it's a likely indication that you do belong to Jesus, that you are concerned about sin. What? we're talking about here is this blasé attitude that says I can do what I like I can please myself I can do my own thing and I'll do some things for Jesus but but I can please and the Bible says 
if that's in our hearts, that may well be a sign that hell is an issue for us. Hell is a bigger issue than we think. The second thing I want to say, and if he pleases, only two points. The second thing I like to say is this. Sin does more damage than you think. Right? Now, if you weren't already feeling down about the first point, now you really will be feeling down, all right? But sin does more damage than you think. This is what Jesus is, is saying here. Now, it's so easy to reduce what he's saying because this is hyperbole, right? Jesus is exaggerating. He's not asking us to mutilate our bodies. But what he is, what comes out from this passage is Jesus is hugely concerned about sin. This is incredibly important, Jesus says. So much so, in exaggeration, yes, but you better cut off your hand or cut off your foot or pluck out your eye. Like that's how serious he is about sin. He is hugely concerned about it. Not just the danger of hell, yes, that is an issue, but the harm that sin causes to us. Let me try and show this from the passage. Uh, verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, and the little ones there, it doesn't say who they are, but if you go back a few verses to verse 36, uh, he took a child and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name. So that's just happened. So it's very likely that he's talking about kids here. If anyone causes one of these little children who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now, we can understand what Jesus is saying there, can't we? You know, like kids are so beautiful and so precious and so important to God. You know, like if anyone causes one of those little kids to sin, then they're in big, big trouble because sin does a lot of damage to them. And we can understand that. There's one common value that our culture still holds to morally, and that is the importance of kids and the protection of children. Pedophilia is still seen in just about every circle as something that's very wrong. So yes, we do understand why kids are precious, except that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Not at all. You see, in our day, kids are incredibly precious and incredibly important. But it hasn't always been like that. Can anyone remember the saying, children should be seen and not heard? Does anyone remember that saying? Yeah, a lot of you do. I remember that saying. You would never say that now. I haven't heard it for years. Like we want our little kids to be talking, you know. Who would ever shut up a kid? You know, like you just don't do that. Kids are precious and important. Not so in Jesus' day. Jesus is using kids here as an example of someone who's insignificant, who's unimportant, who you wouldn't listen to. Remember when people tried to bring their kids to Jesus, what did the disciples do? Shoot them off. <laughs> Little kids, they're not important. Let's go on with the important stuff. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using kids as an example of someone who's very insignificant, someone who's very important. He's saying if you cause one of these very insignificant people to sin, even someone who doesn't really seem to matter much, you are in big trouble. If he was doing it today, he'd probably use maybe a homeless person instead of that. You know, if you cause someone who seems within our society to really not have much value, to really not make much difference, if you cause someone like that to sin, you may as well put on cement shoes and be dumped in the ocean. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how significant sin is. That's how damaging 
sin is. What's the big problem with sin? Why is Jesus so concerned with, with sin? We struggle with that. Do you know what I mean? Because it's so much a part of our society and so much a part of our lives. Why, is Je- why does Jesus have such a big problem with sin? Well, the first thing is, is that sin leads to hell. You know, your friends and family and people at your workplace and people living around you that are going to hell at the moment are not going to hell because of God's choice. They're going to hell because of their sin. That's what sin does. It leads us to hell. It leads us away from God to suffering forever. Oh, sin does incredible damage. But even for Christians, where hell's not on the agenda, even for Christians... You see, God has designed us to live in an intimate relationship with him, to live close to his heart, to be talking to him and sharing with him, to be listening carefully to to what he has to say, to be letting us love us, to be receiving his grace, to be uh, acknowledging his discipline in areas of our lives and getting things right. That is the way we're meant to live. And what sin does is it just breaks that. There's no way we can intentionally go on sinning and live close to our Father. It just doesn't work like that. And so sin breaks that intimacy of the relationship, not eternally because of what Jesus has done, but it does day by day by day. And many Christians are living at a distance from God because of the sin in our lives that's not dealt with. And that does huge damage to the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to live close to God's heart. We're supposed to live in intimate relationship with him. And and that gets broken and that breaks God's heart. And it damages us so much when it's not the way God really wants us to live. Thirdly, uh, sin damages our relationships with other people. And often with our sin, it's the people who are closest to us that suffer most of all because of that. And fourthly, sin damages the opportunity we have to be light and salt in our world. Uh, At the end of this passage, that's what it says. Salt is good, verse 50, but if it loses its saltiness... In other words, because of the sin, we lose our saltiness. How can you make it salty again? In other words, if we're harboring sin in our life, if we're allowing sin, if we're excusing sin in our lives, what happens is, what have we got to offer other people? What can we say about God when we're not living close to him ourselves? And it destroys our witness and stops us being the, having the impact in the places that we go. So sin does immense damage, it really does does far more damage than what we think. No wonder Jesus is so uptight about sin here. No wonder he uses such strong language in dealing with sin because he knows the harm that it does. Now I've used the word sin lots in this sermon, but but what sins are we really talking about here? What what is Jesus really saying uh, about sin? What kind of sins? Well, let's go to verse 47 to the most obvious one. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Well, 95% of the guys here this morning know what that one is, right? It's lust, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like for many guys, this is an issue for us. And Jesus is saying something you do with your eyes is you look at stuff that you shouldn't be looking at. And Jesus says that's, that's hugely dangerous. But there's other things that have to do with the eye as well. There's uh, looking down on people. Uh, there's coveting, looking at what other people have. And, uh, and wanting that for yourself. 
What about hands? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, maybe stealing? Um, I don't know. It's even harder when it gets to feet. Like if your foot causes you to sin, like what's that? Uh, going somewhere where you shouldn't go? If I was Jesus, I would have used tongue. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I know from James 3, you know, if your tongue causes you, I know what the damage the tongue can do, what our words can do. <laughs> but Jesus didn't use tongue, so I better not say that, all right? But anyway, but what he's doing here, he's not actually dealing with specific sins, although we can put specific sins to it. What he's really doing is dealing with sin in general. He says, if sin has got a hold on your life, then you've got to cut it off. Now, what is sin? Well, let me use an old-fashioned word to describe sin. Uh, sin is idolatry. Back in biblical times, uh, people made idols. They made them out of wood or out of clay or out of gold or silver, but they made these idols. And the fact is God couldn't care less about idols. And it was just something that people made. But the trouble is people would take these things that they made, and I'll just go back a little bit, not quite right there yet, they would take these things that they'd made and uh, they would honour them and they would worship them. And that's just terrific. And God gets very, very angry when we, when we do those things. And so sin is idolatry. It's taking something that we, that's in our lives and making it more important than God. Now, we've talked about some of the bad things, you know, things like lust and things like uh, criticism and things like uh, stealing and that. And, and that's certainly true. But equally, idols can be good things. Uh, idols can be our family or, or our job or, or our looks or our sport or our overseas trips. Like... Idols can be any of these things. Whatever it is in our life that becomes more important to us, that we want more than we want God. We'd rather hold on to this than hold on to God. That then is an idol. That then is sin. Idolatry is at the heart of sin. We all have potential idols in our lives. We all have things that we want to hold on to in our lives. And as these things replace God, God is pushed away and our passion for God decreases. Let me uh, give an example. There was a wealthy yuppie that came to Jesus and, uh, and Jesus was impressed. There's not too many places in the Bible that says that Jesus was impressed with people, but this guy, he was impressed with. Like he was fabulous, this guy, like had a heart for God. He'd done so many good things already in his life and he, he just wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus looked at this guy and saw that he only had one idol. Like that's incredible, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like most of us have a number of things in our lives that compete with God. And this guy only had one idol and it was, it was money. Now there's nothing wrong with money. Wealth is a wonderful gift to have. It's a beautiful thing and God can use it in very powerful ways with, through a generous spirit. But in this case, although it was a good thing, it was an idol for this guy. It became very, it was very, very important for him. And Jesus looked at this guy and said, this guy's got an idol. What he, all he needs to do is to cut it off and then he can follow me and it'll be fabulous. So he just confronts the guy and says, okay, all you need to do, he didn't say this, but I'm saying this, you've got one idol, right? Jesus says, it's money. 
just, just go and give it away to the poor and then come and follow me and we'll see what we can do. And the Bible says, this guy went away from Jesus sad. He held on to his money idol and he went to hell. What I'd like to do is um, for us to spend a moment just examining our lives this morning. I haven't quite finished yet, but uh, we're just going to pause in the sermon uh, to examine in our lives what it may be that's standing possibly in the way of God. What is the sin? What is the idol? What is the thing that you may be holding on to and it's becoming more important than God in your life and it's damaging you in so many ways? This is a rather dark song. that We're going to just play a song for a couple of minutes. So this is just a time of meditation now. It's a dark song. It pictures this idol or this sin that's got hold of you as, a, as an old man. Uh, that's sort of a biblical picture. Do you know what I mean? The old man and the new man. So uh, of, of an old man. And he's hiding out there. And he, you might feel like, hey, you might feel safe this morning from this idol. You're in church and you're wanting to serve God. But, but he's waiting to grab your life. And he'll mess you up. And he'll destroy you. He can't impact your salvation if you belong to Jesus. But he'll damage you in untold ways. So let's, let's listen to this song and uh, let's just reflect ourselves and what God might be saying, what the Holy Spirit might be saying. Is there anything there that's standing in your way of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Let's contemplate together. We might just bow our heads and just uh, listen to this song. Back of your woods tonight You forgot he was even there But you never slipped his mind He's living off of scraps of you You never knew you left behind And as the sun goes down He rises with a smile He's waiting on the night to fall The old man's coming to call you don't see the writing on the wall he'll never step out in the light no he's just biding time and while you slumber he's gonna come and take it all he's waiting on the night to fall he's waiting on the night to fall you have the answers but truth lies dusty on your shelf and the sword that you could slay him with has become an ornament and nothing else you could put him back down in his hole in the ground but he knows you never will he's been around so long you got used to the smell he's waiting on the night to fall the old man's coming to call but you don't see the writing on the wall. He'll never step out in the light. No, he's just biding his time. And as you 
your slumber He's gonna come and take it all He's waiting on the night to fall He's waiting on the night to fall He knows he'll never have your soul But he will gladly rob you blind while you're feasting at his table, he'll tie your hands and numb your mind. He'll take you farther than you want to go. He'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. He's waiting on the night to fall. Well, I'm coming to the end of the sermon. I know that what I've said is confronting and harsh in a way, and I would only say that if that's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus has said about sin. The Bible is full of a battle that we're waging, and it's a waging a battle against sin and against Satan. And the fact is we can't do it ourselves. We can't do what's right. We desperately need Jesus' help. And so every day we're crying out, God, I want to serve you, I want to please you. Please help me to do that. Jesus gave his disciples a model prayer of what to pray and how to pray. And part of that prayer is, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That's become a daily prayer in my life. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I desperately need your help in this. I can't do it by myself. But you have to play a part. And there comes a point when you have to say, I don't want to live like this anymore and I will do anything I can to cut off this idol and to put God first. I am not playing here. I am deadly serious. There's a guy in the States called, a guy called Aaron Ralston and uh, he's a mountaineer. He loves climbing mountains and in 2003, he was climbing a canyon in Utah and he was coming down, a, he was by himself and he was coming down a, a slot canyon and as he came down this canyon, got towards the bottom and a big rock, a 360 kilo rock fell and it crushed his hand and pinned his hand against the wall of the canyon and he was stuck there. For a number of days, he tried to move this huge rock but... It just wouldn't move. There was just no way he could lever it off. And he realised that no one was going to find him. He was by himself. He was running out of his rations. He was in considerable pain. And he knew that he was dying. And so on the fifth day, he made an incredible decision. He decided that there was only one chance that he had to be free. And that was to cut off his hand that was crushed and held against the, the wall by this huge rock. And so he levered his arm and broke the bones and then he got a pen knife which was blunt and it took him about an hour and a half and he cut off his hand. He got out and just in a miraculous way he would have died of loss of blood but uh, uh, 
they found some people found him, got in a helicopter, and they flew out, and uh, and he was saved. He's climbing mountains again now. Oh, he's lost his hand. He's a hand short. Oh, he's written a book, of course, and made a movie and all the rest too. But he's doing it without his hand. But I tell you what, there is no place he regrets cutting off that hand. Because if it wasn't for that, he'd be dead now. There's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is saying here. There comes a time when we realise that we're caught and there's no escape and it's damaging us hugely. And Jesus says, if you get yourself, if that's your position, then you've got to do something drastic about this. You've got to cut it off. Jesus is calling you to deal with idolatry this morning in your life and me too. No excuses, no justifications. Sin has to go and it requires radical surgery. God will have to help because we can't do it by ourselves, but you have to make the call. Name the sin, repent, make the choice, get some accountability or some help and some support. But it's time to be free. It's time to live the way God wants us to live. It's time to be close to God's heart and enjoy our relationship with him. It's time to cut it off and be free. Let's pray together. Jesus, these are hard words, but you said them, so I preach them, Lord. And I pray that as we listen to your word and listen to the conviction of the Spirit living in our lives, Lord, our idols might become obvious to us, Lord, and a choice will be made. Enough is enough. No more. I'm not living this way anymore. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will give strength and help and support and encouragement and freedom, Lord, that we might live close to your heart. Pray for anyone here, Lord, that at the, this right now they're heading towards hell, Lord, the journey that they're on. And pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll bring conviction of sin and freedom, Lord, through what you've done on the cross. So, Lord, work in our lives. Help us to realise the horror of sin and to confess and to turn to you and to hold on to you. Please help us in this, we pray, dear Jesus. Amen. Thanks, John.